See, this morning, God is looking for white-hot worshipers who are willing to lay down their lives in full surrender and then take up their crosses in full obedience. Well, hey, welcome to the Shoreline Church podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and I'm the lead pastor at Shoreline Church. And I appreciate you listening today. We are kicking off our series in the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 1. Hope you enjoy this first out of four studies in the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. Uh, Book of Malachi is considered one of the uh, 12 minor prophets, not minor in message, but simply smaller in comparison to the mountain of writings that we have in the other prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Like Isaiah has 66 chapters, Jeremiah has 52, Malachi, in contrast, four chapters. It's like telling your wife, I wrote you a love letter, and it's three words, I love you. She'd say, it's not much of a letter, right? It's a little shorter. And so by the time Malachi is on the scene receiving this message from the Lord, Israel's in a sad state. Uh, And so Malachi enters into kind of a back and forth between God and the people of Israel and, and really gets to the heart of Israel. And the heart of Israel at this time was a cold, backslidden, you could say lukewarm heart. And we've coined 2018 the year of depth and devotion. And we've just spent the first two months, if you haven't been with us, or just popped in here and there, we spent the first two months looking at the seven churches of Revelation. Wasn't that a great study? One of my favorites, it was fantastic. And um, we listened to what Jesus said to the seven churches in Revelation, which is the last book of our New Testament. And today we turn our attention to the last book of the Old Testament. And in this series, in the book of Malachi, we're gonna be challenged of all things in our love relationship uh, with God. And so this book, if you're taking note, is for the backslider. This is a book for the backslider. I like what Dr. Payson said. He said, the symptoms of spiritual decline are like those which attend the decline of bodily health. It generally commences with the loss of appetite and a disrelish for wholesome food, prayer, reading the scriptures, and devotional books. Whenever you perceive these symptoms, be alarmed. Your spiritual health is in danger apply immediately to the great physician for a cure. Uh, And then uh, Charles Wesley would pen these words, who would go from health to pain, turn from grace to wickedness, freedom quit to hug a chain, grieve his friend, his foe to please, who his savior, God to shun, would to his destroyer turn. I would answer Wesley's hymn in this way, me, that's who, me and you, we, are prone, according to what Robert Robinson said in one of my, actually, it is my favorite hymn, Come Thou Fount, we are prone to wander. He said, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Don't you feel that as well, that that kind of fallen urge to slip away silently and slowly from the luring love of the Father? You feel that? The, the, the feeling, and I don't like the word feeling, but just that, that, that pull to wander. Now listen to what um, Spurgeon says about this condition, what Hosea 14 calls backsliding. I just wanna read it to you. It's not gonna be on the screen. Listen to these words Spurgeon says, and think about your relationship to the Lord. He says this, think, beloved, each one of you who are Christ's, how much you may have backslidden recently. 
Have you not become lax in prayer? You maintain its habit, but you do not have that power in prayer you once had. You still read the word, but maybe the scripture is not as sweet to you as it was before. You come to the communion table now, and we will here later in our service, but oh, the face of the king and his beauty. Have you seen that as you once did? Perhaps you still are doing a little for his cause, but are you doing what you once did or all you might do? Instead of going on to perfection, is your growth not stunted? Must you not confess that you are not a runner towards heaven as much as a loiterer in the road here? Do these accusations evoke no confession? I fear that most of us, if we came to search, would have to say, I do remember when, and when my heart was warm with love for Christ, but now, alas, how slow are my passions in moving towards him. Oh, that I would feel once again the glow of my first love, and that my spirit would rejoice in him as on the day of my conversion. See, that's a description of the backslider. And Malachi, writing to Israel, backslidden in heart, about to face a 400-year period of silence, Malachi essentially answers seven questions that all backsliders ask. And so we're gonna study these seven questions and God's response for the next four weeks. So we're gonna put these on the screen if you're taking note or take a picture of this. But these are the questions that these backslidden Israelites ask. They ask these questions and God answers them. They say, how have you loved me? We're gonna cover that today. And what's wrong with my worship? What's wrong with my service? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Can I really trust you? Why do I have to repent? How have I done anything wrong? In other words, I don't need to repent. And then what do you mean I have a bad attitude? These are the questions that backsliders tend to ask. Don't raise your hand, but those are questions when we backslide, we ask. And what I love most though about Malachi is not just that he directly interacts with backslidden Israel, that he answers these questions that people are asking or that he even challenges the status quo and afflicts the comfortable. What I love most about this last book of the Old Testament is that Malachi, listen, he closes his prophecy pointing ahead about 400 years to the forerunner who was gonna come in the spirit of Elijah, the one who would precede the Messiah, Jesus. And he tells us, he says, behold. In other words, pay attention. Look, this messenger who we call John the Baptist, but he wasn't Baptist, but he was the baptizer. John the baptizer, he will prepare the way of the Lord. And so I wanna encourage us as a church for the next four weeks to be reading through the book of Malachi. You may have had a hard time finding it. Some of us went to the table of contents. Where is the book of Malachi? I'm gonna find it. And I wanna encourage you to spend the next four weeks um, reading through uh, this book and even journaling and meditating on the word and asking the Lord to convict all of us in our relationship with him. Now, as we study any book, we like to first kind of dive into five particular questions about the book. So I know we just said seven questions that backsliders ask. Now we're gonna talk, as we open this book, about five important questions, okay? The first question uh, is who wrote this book? Who wrote the book of Malachi? Now, if you're taking note this morning, we don't know much about Malachi the man. Malachi the prophet. Who he was, where he came from, it's actually not known at all. His name, Malachi, is, is uh, translated my messenger. Uh, so a lot of people think, well, was Malachi an angel? They, like, that's the word for messenger. And so they get a little bit confused. They just think oh, his name is assumed. But there's not a lot of support uh, for that idea. 
Um, Malachi was the last messenger, though, of the Old Testament period, if you don't count John the Baptist. Uh, and so he doesn't give any background information concerning himself. But he does have a special kind of style where he does the question and answer and the question and answer. So for that, many people call him the Hebrew Socrates. I think that's cool. So that's who he is. Number two, we wanna ask the question, uh, who is this letter written to? Who is it written to? Well, we know it's written to Israel, but it's important for us to know the spiritual condition of Israel at the time that Malachi wrote this. The people of Israel were not openly rebellious against God. I don't want you to have this picture this morning that everyone was angry and had angst against God. These are the same people that would have helped Nehemiah possibly rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. These are people who were offering sacrifices at the newly rebuilt temple. And so outwardly, they looked really great. They smiled and they came in nice clothing in their worship. Uh, they were following the law of Moses and all the rituals that were prescribed in the Old Testament. So what was the problem? The problem, we'll put on the screen, was not outward compliance, but listen, inward reliance. Big difference. Not outward compliance, but inward reliance. No, they didn't hate God, but listen, their love for him looked a lot more like indifference or apathy than love. They, like the church of Laodicea that we studied last week, were absolutely lukewarm. Stephen Cole says this, I like this, through Malachi, God confronts his people with their apathy toward his great love. No less than 47 out of 55 verses are spoken directly by God, the highest percentage in any of the prophetic books. The response of the people is either astonishment, what do you mean, or cynicism, yeah, right. In effect, they said, you've gotta be kidding, no way. Malachi reveals their blindness to their own indifference. So that's who this letter is written to. And then the third question we wanna ask is, when was this written or where was it written? Uh, Malachi's prophecy came either during or right after Nehemiah and Ezra's reforms and rebuilding. It's around 420 BC, uh, 420 BC. Malachi preaches, uh, we know that because he preaches against a lot of the same sin that Nehemiah spoke out against. Uh, for example, there were corrupt spiritual leaders. Uh, there were problem with intermarriage of pagan people. There was overall moral neglect, and um, there was also a neglect of paying the tithe to uh, the temple. And so Malachi's message at the very end, go ahead, if you've got your Bibles, look at the very last verse of Malachi, uh, chapter four. Notice what it says in verse six. The very last word, at least in my New King James, if you have a different translation, verse six of chapter four, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a, what's the last word? Yell it out, what is it? Curse. The last word in the Old Testament is the word curse. Aren't you so glad the last word in the New Testament is not curse? The last word in the New Testament is grace. I love that, grace. And so Malachi's message ends with a curse and then 400 years of silence when out of this silence breaks a voice in the wilderness, the voice of John, who calls people to repent. Can you imagine this morning that the last time God communicated through the prophet would be 400 years? Well, we can imagine because it's been 2,000, but can you imagine if it were 400 years? That would put us at 1618. That a long, that's a long amount of silence. On the scene, the contemporaries of 1618 were Sir Francis Bacon. He's my favorite scientist for some reason, I'm not sure why. 
Walter Raleigh, Johann Kepler. Okay, those are the guys on the scene in 1618. Long time for a curse to hang in the air. So that's when and where it was written. Now, the fourth question we ask is why? Why is the book of Malachi written? Well, obviously, we kind of just answered that question, to call Israel back from her wandering, to give her one last, listen, one last clarion call to repent and to behold, to condemn godless religiosity and take the spiritual pulse of a people who think that they're in right standing with God because of their outward compliance. But listen, to call them back to genuine repentance, to genuine faith, and to inward reliance upon him. So the last question we ask when we start a new study is, okay, well, so what? So what? Okay, that's the what, now give me the so what. Well, surely that doesn't speak to us at all in our day and age. That certainly doesn't speak to us, to being outwardly religious, to being inwardly maybe cold or lukewarm. I like what J.C. Ryle says. He says, a stranded ship, an eagle with a broken wing, a garden covered with weeds, a harp without strings, a church in ruins. All these are sad sights, but a backslider is a sadder sight still. Wow. We're gonna look at what the Lord would remedy in the life of a backslider, and we're gonna kick it right off today in chapter one. So if you're taking notes this morning, go back to chapter one, and we're gonna, um, we're gonna kind of dissect this passage into three sections. If you're outlining this morning, our outline is gonna be this. First, verses one through five is gonna be divine love. Okay, so jot that down. We're gonna look at divine love, the love of the Father. Uh, then verses six through 11, we're gonna look at the leadership of Israel, and they say, as the leaders go, so go the people, right? And so we're gonna look at the despicable leadership of uh, the people. And then thirdly, uh, verses 12 through 14, we're gonna look at defiled worship, which applies to all of us. So let's first look at verse one. Look at verse one with me. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And then verse two, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now, notice with me uh, here first that the Lord is initiating his love first to his people. Uh, this love is the foundation of what God is going to now communicate to them. Notice, he doesn't begin with a scathing correction. You know, some of our teenagers get home late and we're ready for them, right? And the teenager walks in, you know what time it is, right? We're ready. And this would be like the teenager coming in and instead of, you're grounded forever, right, forever. Instead, we kind of bring them in, hey, come here, I love you. Right, let me give you a hug. Now you're dead, okay? And I just want to establish that. <laughs> you love you, you're love, son, but you're out of the will, all right? And so notice, he doesn't begin with a correction, but an, a reassurance of his love. Now, some have translated verse two as this, I have loved you, I do love you, and I will always love you. God's love is realized in the past and the present tense. You know, I never tire to think on, to study, to ponder, to meditate, to reflect, to contemplate, to write about, whatever verb you wanna use, the great love of God. John the Apostle explains that God doesn't just have love, but God is love. The very essence of who God is, is love. The great hymn, The Love of God, captures the wonder of his love for us, where they say this, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. In other words, if we were able to just write using every resource available, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. 
It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. I think the love of God is one of the most important and unsearchable as far as depth of doctrines that we have, the love of God. Karl Barth, famous German theologian, was once asked, what do you think is the most important, the greatest theological idea that you've ever heard? And here's what this, this master uh, mind kind of said. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Isn't that great? Uh, this morning, God wants to communicate his eternal love for you. You are beloved. You are loved by God. It's one of the most unsearchable as far as deep um, doctrines that we have, the love of God. And yet, is it not the one that we, in our hearts, in our fallen state, challenge the most, where we wonder, does God really love me? Am I loved by God? I've sinned, and now I wanna hide from him because I don't believe his love can reach beyond uh, my guilt. God, through the prophet Malachi, reassures them of his love, but notice Israel in their cold spiritual condition responds not in warmth, but with the challenge, how? How have you loved us? How have you loved us? This is the question we rarely speak, but often think. How have you loved me, God? Or maybe you've asked this. Well, if God loves me, then why did this happen to me? Why did this happen? Often the circumstances of our life cause us to question God's love. Today, many Jews question the love of God because of the Holocaust, but he still loves them. Sometimes we think of love as this, maybe this weak idea that's totally indulgent, right? But love, listen, true love doesn't condone wrongdoing, it corrects it. And we looked at that in the seven churches, that God loves us, but he corrects us in his love. You guys know as parents, when little Johnny eats his peas, right, you commend him, you applause him, good job, Johnny, even though his name's Bob, right? You're giving him something that's good for him. And, um, you know, he hesitates to eat, but he obeys, and that's something that you should commend, right? That's a good thing. But when cute little Johnny reaches over into the cabinet to eat rat poison, right, you don't commend that. No, you protect him from that. You warn him. Why? Because the rat poison's gonna kill cute little Johnny. And some of you parents, I have to say, we struggle with this from time to time, right? A lot of us live like this with our children. We make excuses about how our kids were adopted or they had a difficult birth or a hard childhood or maybe you're a step-parent and we avoid correction. We're careful to avoid correction. And listen, when you do that, you're showing your kids you don't love them because the scriptures tell us that whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And so God says, I love you. And they go, you don't love us. He goes, well, let me tell you how much I love you. The backsliders look at their lives and they fail to see the present love of God. And so this isn't a fair question. So God asks them a question. Notice the rest of verse two, the analogy between Jacob and Esau. God says, okay, well, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. God asks Israel, hey, you need, to, you need to find assurance in my love for you and in my election. I like to say this, they had forgotten who they were because they had forgotten whose they were. They forgot whose they were. They belonged to the Father. And God says, remember this. Remember you're chosen and you remain a chosen people. You're highly favored. Uh, Jacob's descendants, we know, went on to become Israel, whereas Esau's descendants went on to become a people known as the Edomites. You just read it a few moments ago, the Edomites, verse four, Edom. Uh, these people, the Edomites, were promised judgment by the prophet Obadiah. They were promised judgment. 
And by the time Malachi writes this, Obadiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. They've received judgment. Uh, and so they've been punished. But Israel has been preserved, and they're back in their homeland. And so here they are questioning God's love for them. But one of the huge evidences of God's undying love is, hey, you're back in the land. I'm with you. I've preserved you, and I've kept you as a people where judgment came to the Edomites. They had forgotten who they were because they had forgotten whose they were. Uh, see, having a grasp of the love of God in our election should bring a peace and assurance of who uh, God is in his love for us. Notice what David Gusick says. He says this, I love this. He says, um, election means that God chose us before we existed and that the reasons for his choosing and loving us are based in him, not in us. Knowing God chose us gives us a sense of boldness and confidence in our walk with him. But since the finished work of Jesus, we have a new demonstration of love. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, Romans 5.8, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, someone's this morning thinking this. Uh, wait a minute, look at verse three, pastor. I see the word hate, okay? How does God hate someone? God hates Esau? How can God hate anything? Well, God didn't hate him in the sense of hate like we think. We think of hate crimes, hate speech, lashing out, I hate that guy, right? Man, I hate that guy, right? And we strike out against someone. Uh, in fact, Genesis 33 and 36 actually tells how blessed Esau actually was. And so when God chose Jacob, he left Esau unchosen. He chose Jacob, he left Esau unchosen. And so Jacob received the blessing of Abraham, uh, Esau did not. Uh, the idea is actually, if you understand this, it's more of a lesser degree of love. God loved Jacob so much more that it appeared to be hate for Esau. Now John Calvin actually points out the real thought here is less of love, hate, and more of accept and reject. I've accepted Jacob and I've rejected Esau. Now remember why this is brought up. It's not to exclude, but to encourage. Not to condemn, but to comfort. God's trying to say, hey, don't forget, I, I've accepted you, I've loved you. I've rejected Edom, but I've loved you. Uh, a woman once said to Spurgeon, I can't understand why God would say that he hated Esau. And Spurgeon said, well, that's not my, difficult, my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. Uh, right? Uh, one person said this, Malachi is not speaking of the predestination of the one brother and reprobation of the other. He's contrasting the histories of the two peoples represented by them. Both nations sinned, both are punished, but Israel by God's free mercy was forgiven and restored while Edom was left in the misery which it had brought upon itself by its own iniquity. It's interesting that God wants to remind them, I have loved you. Even though these two were brothers, Jacob and Esau, I've loved you. I have not left you. In fact, look at verses three through five. He says, I've laid waste his mountains, his heritage for the jackals. Verse four, even though he said we've been impoverished, but we'll return and rebuild the desolate places. He says, well, they may build, but I will throw down. They may, or they shall be called the territor territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation uh, forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. In other words, Esau's ruins, they may be boastful, they're not gonna be rebuilt. Now, Israel will be rebuilt, and today we see that, even in the 20th century, rebuilt. Uh, but the Edomites were lost forever. In fact, they believe that Herod was the last known Edomites. They were gone. But now, today, Israel remains. So notice the next idea. We've talked about divine love. Notice the next idea of despicable leadership in verses six through 11. And we're gonna cover this real quickly because I am a leader and this is uncomfortable. But look at verse 
6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am the father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. Then he directs it. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, oh, in what way have we despised your name? All right, so follow me, guys. I have your attention. The logic that God is using here is pretty straightforward. If you call God Father and Master, then the reverence and the respect should fall in line. I revere you as my Father, so I honor you. I revere you as my Master, so I submit to you. All right, and so the Israelite leaders were not having this reverence. And so God says, well, where is it? Where is my honor and reverence? And notice the second question that Israel asks. They said, well, in what way have we despised your name? In what way? So he answers them, verse seven, moving a little faster. You offer, here it is, defiled food on my altar. Would you circle that phrase? You offer defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? Well, by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And notice verse eight, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, what's happening here? The priests are essentially going through the motions. They're going through the outward motions of the sacrificial system, but they're violating the essence of it. Okay, you wanna jot these verses down, uh, Leviticus 22 and Deuteronomy 15. Leviticus 22, Deuteronomy 15. I go back for some robust reading later. Those verses clearly prohibit offering an imperfect sacrifice or a blemished sacrifice. In other words, you don't offer a sick lamb, a blind lamb, a handicapped lamb to God. You bring the best, not the leftovers. Of the lamb was to be pure and spotless, nothing blemished or broken or borrowed. I read a story this week of a man. This man had two lambs, and he was gonna offer one of them to God and keep the other for himself. And the morning that he was supposed to bring one of the lambs to the sacrifice, well, he woke up and walked down, and one of the lambs had died. And he said to his wife, oh, no, the Lord's lamb died. Bummer. That's what's happening here. Notice verse 8. God says, this is evil. It's evil. You wouldn't give this shoddy excuse for an offering to your governor. So why is it acceptable to God? If the political leader wouldn't accept it, and you would never bring something blemished to him, why is it then okay to do it in the church? I found some people have the same attitude when it comes to their offering. I found some people, you know, when it comes to giving stuff to goodwill, they're like, hey, this stuff's broken. Let's give it to the church. <laughs> Right? And one time we had a church yard sale and uh, someone brought a TV, one of those big tube TVs from back in the day that weigh about 600 pounds. And they dropped it off at our, at our yard sale and uh, we tried to sell it all day for like $50. Like, please, at this point, we'll pay you $50. Just get it off of the property. And then the person finally came, well, I'll buy it. I guess we could use something like this. You know, we'll put it in the backyard and, and turn it into a hot tub or something. And so, uh, all right. And so, we plug it in and it didn't even work. Someone donated a huge TV, their garbage to the church, right? Even today, many of us still give God our castoffs, our pollution, our sick. But see, that wouldn't fly in the governor's house. Think of how this applies to us this morning, Shoreline. We gladly, if I could step on some toes, mine included, we gladly give our kids sports programs every evening of the week, uh, but we won't give time for a ladies or men's Bible study or community group. 
one night a week, every other week. We'll, we'll gladly subscribe to Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime to get that free shipping. Uh, uh, but hey, we haven't gotten around to kind of, you know, give a portion of our income to the Lord through the local church we're a part of. Uh, we don't dare arrive at work five to 10 minutes late, absolutely not for an important meeting with our boss. Uh, but we have no problem sometimes strolling in casually late to meet with God. We pay very careful attention to our diet and our exercise, and yet we neglect spiritual food and disciplines like a starving child in a concentration camp. Why do we bring our best to the governor, but we hold back and offer our leftovers to the Lord who created us? See, God doesn't want the leftovers. He wants the first. He wants the best of our lives. Some of you young people this morning think, well, let me live my life first, and then at the end of my life, then I'll give God the best. No, no, you give him the best now. Uh, give him the best years of your life. See, often we bring defiled sacrifices. And the great sorrow of this passage is that these were the leaders of Israel. And as the leaders go, so go the people. I know I can speak on behalf of our elders here at the church that we take our responsibility and our role very seriously. And we understand as leaders in the church the, the weight and the expectation of our position. And we know that a people only rise to the level of the spiritual maturity that their leaders espouse. And so really, your elders soberly wake up every day to that reality. So pray for them. Pray for us. Pray that God would continue uh, to help us be not, de not despicable leaders, but men who are worthy of following. That we could say, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm willing to lay down my life, and so follow me in that. But notice that Malachi in verse 7 says that your offering is that phrase I told you to circle, defiled food, defiled food. I've got a little bit of a soapbox I wanna get on for a minute. Uh, I have a problem when pastors bring defiled food. Can we talk about that for a minute? There's, there are, there's a position that we have that we're to bring spiritual nourishment to God's people, not something that's defiled. And I think that many, many pastors sadly do that. Uh, and I think there's three ways that we do that. So if you're taking note, I just wanted to harp on this for a minute because uh, I don't know, I'm mean. So there are three ways that pastors do this. First of all is what I call a meat substitute. Defiled food is what he says. There's a meat substitute. Some of you guys know at the end of 2017, I was trying to keep it a secret, but I tried to be vegan for a week. Ha, <laughs> that was funny, right? Uh, I watched a documentary, got spooked, and I, I started eating grass and um, <laughs> styrofoam and... Um, <laughs> Anything that wasn't meat. Thankfully, donuts don't generally have meat, so we're good. I was able to survive. But I found myself asking around and shopping for anything that was a meat substitute. But here's what I was really asking. Is there something that looks like meat, that smells like meat, that tastes like meat, but it's not meat? Uh, I wanted the flavor of the meat without the nourishment. Follow me? I wanted the flavor without the nourishment. There are many pastors whose food is defiled in this way. There's the flavor of meat without the sustenance that the meat provides. So there's plenty of anecdotes, plenty of quotes, these pithy little memorable statements that you can retweet, but there's not much of the word of God. They teach from the Bible, and they quote a verse or two, but you don't learn the Bible itself. And they'd rather be clever than clear. And to me, that's what I'd call a meat substitute. It reminds me of the foolish old farmer. He uh, concluded one day that the oats that he was feeding uh, his mule for years cost him too much. These oats cost a fortune, I'm feeding this old mule. And so here is his plan. He mixed in some sawdust in with the oats. And so he thought, oh, that'll work. And so then he did a little bit more the next day, a little more sawdust. 
and then even more the next, reducing the oats and increasing the sawdust. Well, the mule didn't notice the gradual change, and so the farmer thought, oh, this is great. And so he just continued decreasing, decreasing, and finally one day, all the mule came to that morning was a big pile of sawdust. And he ate the food, finished the meal, and fell over dead. It's kind of an object lesson. May we never substitute the meat of the word of God for something that cost us less. Amen? Secondly, I think another way that we as pastors can have defiled food that we offer is undercooked food, undercooked. What do I mean by that? Well, many pastors don't spend the necessary time to study the word, to seek to know the context and the interpretation of a text, and thus with little or sometimes no preparation, they'll stand in the pulpit and deliver to the people what I call uncooked food or undercooked food. Uh, it's defiled because we hold the word of God in contempt. And rather than being careful with our exegesis, many pastors erroneously believe, well, I'm just gonna kind of get up there and the spirit will lead me, amen. And uh, you know what? Sadly, you find is that the spirit sounds a lot more like endless rambling and incoherent babble, right? But when the spirit has given you the words to say, when Jesus said that, it's when you're standing before someone that's gonna persecute you not when you're in the pulpit, right? So one person said, give me an hour and I'll speak for a week, but give me a week and I'll speak for an hour. And I like that. Uh, may God have mercy on men who have shoddy sermon prep uh, and serve as people undercooked food. The third thing I think that is defiled is, is cold food, cold food. How many of you have received your food from the waiter and, and you're at a decently fancy restaurant? And what I define that as is one where they don't wear a name tag, right? So. The wait, waiter brings you your food, he sets it down, and it's plated beautifully, and you hold hands and you pray, you cut a piece of the filet mignon or the chicken, and you go to take a bite, and your first bite is cold. Does that happen to anyone here? Uh, both of us, all right. That's the worst, that is the worst. I say 100% of the time that that's ever happened, it's unacceptable, it gets sent back. And yet, how many times do pastors bring the word of God Right? It's healthy, it's fresh, it's plated so well, and yet it's cold as ice. It lacks passion, fervor, conviction. We just kind of get up there and like, all right, well, it's a blessing to be here this morning. We're just gonna open the word. And you're falling asleep. I'm falling asleep as I'm preaching, right? Defiled food. May the food that's presented here at Shoreline always be food that's acceptable to the Lord and nourishing to his people, amen? So when the spiritual leaders are indifferent, about the things of God. What does that say about the people they're leading? Look at verse nine. Look at verse nine. He says, now entreat God's favor to us, uh, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? Someone says, I'll kindle fire. It's in the Bible. All right. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands, okay? What's happening here? God is not pleased with their behavior. The backslider would ask, well, what's wrong with my service to the Lord? But God's question is, should I be pleased with half-hearted devotion? Is there a husband this morning that's pleased that his wife wears the ring but is kind of entertaining other lovers? Oh, I'm just happy that she's still devoted to me. No, no God says in verse 10, if that's all you have to offer, then let's just shut the doors and stop. God doesn't want half-hearted, empty Worship. He's not pleased by it. And then we have this incredible verse, verse 11. He says, For from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. 
for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What a powerful verse. Reiterated twice this idea that his name will be great. It'll be magnified among all people groups, every ethnic group. Across the globe, wherever the sun shines, God's name will be lauded and praised. And so he mentions here the incense. This is a symbolic act. There's danger of replacing the reality with a symbol. And that often happens in religious circles. We place an importance on the ritual instead of the reality. And so incense ultimately represents prayers of the people rising up to God. In Revelation 5, it says that our prayers are held in bowls of incense. And so he says, let's just shut the doors if this isn't gonna be real, right? That brings us to our third idea, and that is number three, defiled worship. Look at verse 12. He says, here's what you do, you profane it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, uh, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand? The answer is, of course not. Verse 14, but cursed be the deceiver who has a flock, in his flock a male, and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what's blemished. He holds it back. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. They actually have the audacity to say that their sacrificial offering is weary. I'm tired of this. And they look with contempt at God's table, and they say, it's just defiled. Yet at the same time, isn't that ironic? They bring defiled sacrifices to offer on the altar. So God calls them out. Verse 14 says, you are deceptive, like Ananias and Sapphira. You're coming to worship me, yet you're holding back in dishonesty what belongs to me. Sometimes we pray prayers like this, don't we? We say, Lord, I give you everything, everything. And he says, okay, well, let me, let me look at how you're spending your time. <laughs> and we go, well, hold on, Lord. No, no, no. No, I'm giving you my whole life, Lord, body, mind, and soul, and hard, and you can have all of me, but my time's none of your business, right? And so he says, well, let me look at your bank account for uh, a second, and we go, hey, we're talking about Jesus. We're not talking about money. And he goes, let's talk about how you work and deal with your spouse. You're like, she has nothing to do with this, Lord, right? Uh, we often do this. A.W. Tozer said this, incredibly convicting. In every Christian's heart, there's a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross, if he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. Look at this. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. But what does God say through Malachi? He says, I'm a great king, and my name is to be feared among the nations. In other words, fear me, honor me, revere me, have respect for me. And when you do that, then I'll be honored and respected among the nations. But if you're not gonna respect me, then how can you expect people around you who don't know me to take your worship serious? See, this morning, God is looking for white-hot worshipers who are willing to lay down their lives in full surrender and then take up their crosses in full obedience. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, this is shoreline.com. God bless you. And remember, it's all about Jesus. We'll see you next time for our study in Malachi chapter two.